This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. We all know from experience that compliance can suck. But what if compliance didn't have to suck? Well, there's a better way. Our friends at ByteCheck developed the first ever managed service for SOC 2. Leverage the ByteCheck platform to complete your SOC 2 examination faster without the headache. The ByteCheck team works as an extension of your team and bring a combined 30 plus years of experience to help your team prepare evidence, draft SOC 2 report sections, and provide all the necessary information and artifacts to your auditors. Reach out to the ByteCheck team today to learn more at ByteCheck.com and tell them Hacker Valley Studio sent you. What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. In this episode, we've brought in Patrick Coughlin. He is the founder and CEO of TrueStar. Not only is Patrick a founder, he is an innovator and leader in cyber threat intelligence. We get into automation and helping organizations thrive by answering security-related questions. Without further ado, let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in the studio. And today we've brought in a security founder. We have Patrick Coglin. He is hyper-focused on helping organizations with Intel automation, and he's built an Intel management platform. He is the CEO and co-founder of TrueStar. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Hey, thanks for having me, folks. Super excited to be here. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Patrick. It's hard to believe we've known each other for almost like two years at this point. And we definitely share the same philosophy about security automation and the impact of intelligence. For the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Sure. No, I've been a huge fan of you both individually and, and of the show. I think back since before when it was Sec DevOps. <laughs> um, and and, and oh. throwback and, and seeing what it's become today. Uh, just it, it's an honor to be here and, and congratulations on, on what you've done. Nothing makes me happier than to see you guys emerging as really a voice for the community. So great to be Thank here. You. My background. So I, I started my career as a security analyst. Actually, if you go back before that, in in college and graduate school, I was studying how bad guys were using technology. I wrote a lot of papers that nobody read on things like how, how terrorists would potentially use video games like Second Life at the time. I'm really dating myself. Mm. And then went on to work as a security analyst in the Middle East, in Washington, D.C. I worked for government customers. I've worked for multinational corporations. I've worked in counterterrorism. I've worked in anti-money laundering and terrorist financing. And I've worked in cybersecurity. And from what I've seen in this space, the fundamental challenge is always the same. And it doesn't really matter what the domain is that you're coming at it from. The challenge is really you've got these disparate buckets of data, these silos, and that data often sits in different structures. It sits in different formats. 
And, and part of my job as an analyst, no matter what the domain was to punch through these silos, uh, find this, find a signal in the data, clues it together with signal from other silos and create some sort of insight and then inject that insight into a workflow in a hopefully increasingly automated way. And whether it was counterterrorism or cybersecurity, that was the mission. And really at, at TrueStar and, and a lot of what I do every day is focused on how do we bring how do we bring that to the enterprise at speed to make security operations more efficient, more effective on the back of intelligence. I love the fact that you're so focused on automation. If I could change my middle name to automation, I would be Ron <laughs> Automation Eddings. <laughs> he would. I, I, I believe it. I you like know, it. I just absolutely love it. And I love all the things that you can do with it. Like you were saying, bringing the siloed data to more of a unified space where you can, where you're not jumping around from place to place so much. But when I think of automation and what I've experienced when automating is bringing too much data to an individual or a team. Have you experienced that? And what are some of your solutions around not overloading an analyst or an organization and causing fatigue? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's absolutely the right question. And by the way, I think the the mix of, of both your backgrounds is just perfect for this. And Ron, I know you've spent a lot of time looking at how to drive automation architecturally into the enterprise and, and the places that you've been coming at it from looking at threat intelligence, but also what are some of the orchestration platforms and ways that you can really get leverage out of the tools that you've invested in. And you're absolutely right. The automation is only... a as effective as the data is clean, normalized, and prioritized. It doesn't just happen. And, and so you have to focus on, and this is really the, the core of what data-centric security automation is essentially, how do you manage your intelligence upstream from your downstream action in your detection and response stack. And if you try to kludge the two things together, what happens is you get a lot of false positives, you incur a lot of integration debt. But once you start to, to split these out and you manage your intelligence upstream, you allow for the normalization and the prioritization to happen before you try to inject it into automation, orchestration, detection and response, what happens is your false positives go down, your mean time to detection goes down, and your mean time to remediation or resolution becomes more efficient. Those are two of the most important metrics that a response team can have, and even in a tangential way, intelligence. If people look at your background now, they see CEO and founder, but at your true core, I believe that you are an analyst. Where did that analytical prowess come from? And have you always been as analytical as you are today? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, I did not expect that one. I, 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 think, uh, I think I've always been very analytical. If you ask my wife, probably to a fault. But I, I think it came professionally when you know I, I worked early in my career at a place called Booz Allen Hamilton, which I think actually yep. both of you have. We as both well. did. Um, and there's some interesting things that that you learn at a place like that. I joke with a lot of the people on on the team here at TrueStar. They're constantly having to put up with my feedback on their content and their slides because one of the things you learn at Booz Allen is how to put together a freaking slide deck and how to communicate and articulate insight to leaders in in sophisticated leaders in the government in in the private sector 
and so I, I've carried that with me, I think, wherever I've gone since then. But yeah, I would say I'm an analyst at heart. I've worked on different projects across different domains. Like I said, counterterrorism. I've been in the field in, in Afghanistan and Yemen and in, in Syria and Iraq. I've been in the bowels of the Pentagon, sitting there reading and writing reports that nobody else reads. Yeah, it's very much in my blood. When I think of you being at the Pentagon and also Booz Allen Hamilton, I think of the ability to read and digest and simplify information for someone else to take in. What are some of the things that you do when you're reading and trying to transform something technical into something that can be understood by maybe leadership or other non-technical team members? Yeah, I think the the boiling it down to the the bottom line up front or the the <laughs> TLDR or or whatever the right phrase is now, how you really do that is is you look for first of all, what are your requirements? And I think Chris, one of the things that, that you all have done with the easy framework, which I understand you're now applying to to cybersecurity in general, but I think it started actually is how do you, you know, how do you build a threat intelligence program and where do you start? And the focus on what's the problem that I'm trying to solve, right? And what's different in national security versus enterprise security. In national security, the the purpose of intelligence is to inform policy. And often that can take the forms in, in national security of targeting. Attribution really matters. You serve up some intelligence and a bomb falls out of the sky. Somebody dies. That's not a rare outcome in national security. In enterprise security, though, what's interesting is the purpose is not to inform policy. The purpose is not attribution. The purpose of intelligence in enterprise security is to accelerate automation. And while it's difficult sometimes for us to remember that, especially some of us who, like all of us on this call, have had some experience in, in national security. So it's difficult to remember that, wait, there was this national security purpose of intelligence, but that's different for the enterprise. And once you bite down on the fact that the purpose of intelligence for the enterprise is to accelerate automation, all of a sudden, the job of the analyst changes and you become more of an architect for automation rather than a finder of attribution for the purpose of writing a report that scares the crap out of the board about APT29. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up being an architect of automation because we have Ron Eddings here who talks about automation all the time. And one of the debates that we often have is whether you can automate everything. Now, I think in theory, you can, but I don't think there's a lot of organizations that are able to automate response, intelligence. How do you, where do you feel that line is between automation and where you have to actually bring in an analyst? And do you think those lines are starting to merge? Yeah, yeah. The, it's, the, the idea that automation is an end state, I think, is a mistake. One of the Gartner gives us a lot of help, help, helpful things. I think SOAR has been a little bit of a security orchestration automated responses. The, the category that Gartner has labeled this catch-all for, for things that drive automation has not necessarily been helpful because it describes this idea that automation is something that you achieve or that you can even buy, which isn't true, right? Automation is a journey and, and it's all relative. Uh, and it's all about always having a rising tide that is raising all boats. It's not necessarily getting to a, a high water mark. 
So I think that's really important. So can you automate everything? Well, I think the answer to that is the answer to that is no, you can't automate everything because there's always more things to automate and really to focus on how are you progressing down the journey of automation for your enterprise and for your organization. It's okay to say we can automate everything. <laughs> I believe we can. <laughs> I forgot your middle name. But but I think the the Ron, you talk a lot about you know, the architect for automation. And I think that's so important because we hear all the time, and you guys have heard these stats. You talk about them on some of your shows. 70% of organizations report that their resilience was impacted due to a lack of skilled cybersecurity professionals. This was in CSO magazine a couple months ago. We talk about this lack four or five million, I don't know what it is today, four or five million open jobs in cybersecurity. What's happening there? Do we really have a lack of skilled professionals or are we just forcing our skilled professionals to be data wranglers, to be tool togglers, to be copy paste as a service? Is that really what the challenge is? At, at RSA, not this year, but because of course, I guess it was this year. It was early this year. RSA was before COVID. I heard there was a vendor, I won't mention the, the product, but up on you know stage talking about what a CTI analyst should be doing with their day. And they said, if you're not spending half your day searching around, tagging data, curating publishing information, sending data to the SOC, then you're not doing your job. And I thought to myself, what that person just described is effectively data wrangling. There's nothing skilled about what that person is doing. And so my point of all of this is that automation is a journey and the role of the analyst, you know, will evolve from this hunting and pecking and tagging and searching and tool toggling and 50 different tabs open on their browser to this role where they are an architect of teams and tools and outcomes. And how they level up in that journey will define their sophistication in automation. That's a great summary. And I 100% agree with that, especially when you look at things like the cyber defense matrix. It's a matrix that kind of shows the difficulty or the dependency that we need technology in. So when you're looking at identification, protection, and detection, you could really use technology there. You could use automation. But when it comes to response and recovery, you might need the people. You can't really respond to something without human intervention. It implies that there's a human involved in, in one way or another. Same with recovery. And I think when we're looking at automation, we can totally get to the point to where incident response is analysts responding to incidents rather than going and looking at alert sources and creating incidents manually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. The challenge is that the white space between detection and decision is so huge in so mm -hmm. many enterprises right now that we're not even close to effectively closing that gap completely with automation. And there's so much work to do there. So I agree with what you're saying. And I think it is really important for enterprise security leaders to, to understand where they're going to get the most bang for their buck in pointing automation. Right. Where do you start and, and where's the highest impact? And I do think that white space between decision and detection is, or sorry, detection and decision is the right place to start. That's the highest bang for your buck. And really the nuances around remediation, incident response may require more of the human level 
intervention. Although if you talk to some of these, if you talk to, hopefully I'm not speaking out of school here, but Oliver Friedrichs at, at, at Splunk now, who was the, the founder of Phantom. And Ron, I know you've got experience working with Demisto. Some of these early orchestration platforms were actually designed more for the remediation mission. When you look at what those platforms can really do well, it's, oh, if this, then fire off an MFA request. If this, then go update a blacklist. Some of the remediation are after the fact work. But what happened, I think, a little bit with orchestration is we started to use it more for enrichment. And that's where it really hit a little bit of a wall for many organizations is they're trying to use their orchestration and automation platforms to do the data normalization, to do the intelligence enrichment. And if you look at those playbooks in Demisto and Phantom where enrichment is being used, they're far clunkier. They're bigger. They're a lot harder to maintain. And so one of the, the values of data-centric security automation is remove that part of the playbook. Take the enrichment, the normalization, the data orchestration, and separate it from your process or your action orchestration. And once you do that, automation really starts to accelerate. I would love to hear some war stories and success stories that you've experienced. I'm sure you talk to many organizations, you help a lot of organizations. What are some of the good, bad, and ugly things that you've seen? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think the Probably the best stories are actually around the value of internal intelligence. One thing that's often overlooked so much in this conversation about intelligence is we default to this idea of intelligence as threat intelligence, something that you buy from a vendor, or perhaps you subscribe to an ISAC or an ISAL, or you take an open source intelligence. It's the sort of default to the external. And one of the things that I think we've seen the most successful enterprises move towards is really recognizing the value of their internal intelligence. And by that, there's so much signal that is now spitting out of our detection and response stack, right? These tools are creating alerts and events that are being triaged and adjudicated every minute, hour, day. There's cases and tickets in your ticketing system or case management system. Often there's multiple different Ticketing systems, IT may be using one that's different from security. Fraud may be using a different case management system. Corporate security may be using something else. And I'd say that the biggest success stories are when we're able to actually allow an enterprise to correlate and harvest the value from their own internal intelligence. So many times I go into a SOC and I say, okay, if you're sitting there with a bunch of analysts and you're trying to understand what their process is, and you say, okay, what's the first thing that you do when you open that JIRA ticket or when you open that ServiceNow ticket? And so many of the analysts look, look at me and say, I close my eyes and I try to think if I've seen something like this before. And, and I feel like if, if that's the answer, then we're going to lose. If we can't even correlate across our own internal tickets or cases, then we're missing the most valuable information in cybersecurity. And it's far easier to buy external intelligence than it is to actually stitch that in internal stuff together. But the enterprises that have done it, and I can think of a financial services company based in, in, in New Jersey that does a fantastic job of stitching intelligence and event data from fraud to, to physical to, to cybersecurity. And that's really exciting to see. That is super exciting. And I would wonder if you indulge me just for a moment. 
Think about this dichotomy of intelligence where you look at intuition versus logic. When I was younger, logic reigned supreme. It's this or this. We were talking about Boolean logic, like this and this or this. And if this is this, then that. But the older I've gotten, I find that I feel like intuition is logic 10x, where it is still a bit of logic, but you're going off a feeling and more data points. It goes from this is to this feels. And I do believe it is quantifiable, but it has to have a lot of great introspection in order to understand all of the data points that are a part of this analysis. Would you agree that intuition is important for an analyst or would you still side on the side of logic? So, okay, so I get it now. So you, Chris, you're the emotional subjective one and ron you're the one who's like we can <laughs> robots can solve all the problems <laughs> i see i see what's going on here okay uh, um, no i so i'll take a controversial position on this that may actually side more with ron's view of the world chris and, and i think it's because we've got a long way to go the value of saying intuition and words like my least favorite these days, tradecraft. What happens when we say these words is we create barriers between what the job to be done is and what the outcome and the business impact is. And it, we, in, in the book, Data Centric, or sorry, in the book, The Data Centric Revolution by Dave McCombs, he talks about this idea of the high priests of complexity. And in these data challenges, often what happens is we introduce these high priests of complexity. And they say, look, you couldn't possibly understand how complex this is. I had a career in, in, in national security and just trust me, there are only people like me who can solve this problem and my tradecraft or my intuition is something that I've honed over decades and it's very difficult to articulate. Just give me my budget and leave me alone. <laughs> and I think that in security, we are super guilty of that. We are, we are super guilty of that and we have survived and thrived using that in, in the last decades. I think what's going to happen in the next decade is that we're going to start to disabuse ourselves a little bit of the art of intelligence and we are going to embrace the science of data. And once we do that, once we do that, all of a sudden security is going to have a different seat at the table for the business that I actually think is going to be far more impactful. And I also think you're going to start to see the value of intelligence for security operations to, to increase. That's really interesting. So let me give you an example. I, I think you're completely right. Like this decision that I made could have been fueled by data, but it wasn't. So we, I was working for an organization and we had certain thresholds for analysis and, and dissemination. And there was an emerging threat that happened. And I said, this doesn't meet any of our criteria for the company, but I feel that this is something that everyone needs to know. Mm. So then I put that information out and I remember my boss hit me up saying, hey, this didn't meet any of our thresholds. Can you walk me through this? And so I walked him through my, my feeling, my decision logic. And he says, you know what? I think you're a hundred percent. It was like a blink. I was like, what the heck is a blink? There's a book called Blink, yeah. and the, the author's name escapes me at this point. Malcolm Gladwell. But it, okay, there you go. But what they were doing is they were still taking in 
tremendous amounts of information. And these are usually folks that have spent a lot of time, but it, time doesn't necessarily have to be the limiter. It could be someone that's super passionate about threat hunting or threat intelligence or security operations, but they have the focus and the information to make decisions based on feeling, even though they might not necessarily understand why they made the decision. And that's why I bring up that that, that concept. I Look, I, I completely agree that there are certain times and places for those types of feeling or subjective decisions. And actually, the purpose of automation is to ensure that the human is actually optimized. And so I want you making more decisions like that and actually spending less time tagging and copying and pasting indicators out of an email into a freaking Splunk lookup table. How do we make sure that you are positioned to be making those calls and spending more of your time or an analyst's time doing that and really actually using the trade craft or the intuition for what it is designed for. And I, like that, that's exactly it. I'll tell you one other story that's a, the counter to that. We were working with, with a finan- another financial services company that had a fairly large uh, cyber threat intel team. And one of the things they kept asking us for was more and more flexibility around the human experience in applying tags to the data that was in TrueStar. And we kept double click, like, why do you want to spend so much time applying these tags? Wouldn't it be better if we could automate the application of these tags? And and really, when you think about it, intelligence for enterprise security is actually just providing labeled data. The whole point is to, to label data to drive automation. And so when we look at the challenge, we look at the analyst and we say, what is the heuristic that analyst is executing in their head? And how can we repeat that or, or patternize that and, and automate that going forward? And so what this person was just doing was saying, no, you couldn't automate this. My tradecraft, my years of experience, I'm the only one who can do this. Just leave me alone and help me apply these different tags. And so we did. And, and what happened is all they were doing was taking data from FSISAC, validating it up against CrowdStrike. And seeing if CrowdStrike said the FSI SAC data was also bad, and if it was, then publishing that that signature or that indicator to an enclave or to a place that it could be consumed by security operations. And so let's just automate that, right? The human shouldn't be doing that. Completely agree with that. And I think this is getting to a very interesting part of the conversation because That's where things like machine learning and artificial intelligence come into play and potentially help. But we've spoken to some of our guests in the past, and some are very pro-AI and ML, and some are against it. And that's because you can have a poisoned well of this human logic, this human tradecraft that they've been labeling data. And turns out they've been using these sharing groups that might be incorrect within attributing this indicator to a specific threat. What are your thoughts on using AI and ML and where should we begin and where should we really keep humans in the loop? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of mud in the water with AI and ML. You know, you guys probably see it all the time. You slap a little sprinkle a little AI here, a little ML there and and all of a sudden the funding from Silicon Valley starts to to roll in. And so I think that there's a, there's plenty of fud out there around AI and ML. And I can understand why the the security community is a little bit disillusioned with it right now. But our position, my position personally, is that we have to stop the black box BS with with AI and ML. And we have to really focus 
the value of machine learning right now is actually in the data preparation side. And, and what I mean by that is, is automation is only as effective as the data is clean, normalized, and prioritized. So how do we point machine learning at actually extracting more effectively, normalizing more effectively, entity resolution, and, and stop talking about the best, baddest algorithm for detecting a malicious URL until you can actually separate a, a URL from a domain efficiently. And if you can actually do some fuzzy matching to resolve different URLs to different do- domains, that's where we should be pointing this. And and down, down the stack, what will come is the prioritization value of machine learning. But for right now, I actually think it's in the data preparation part of the process. Someone's listening right now to this podcast and they've wanted to automate for so long, but they're so busy fighting fires and doing the day-to-day that they just haven't had a chance. What is something that someone can do today to step into automation? I think the the right place to start is in detection. And the reason is because you can really control your throttles. And so what's one thing somebody can do is they can look at how do I get sources of known bad indicators into my detection stack so that I could drive high fidelity detections. And you can start really small, throttle the, the the threshold very high up so that you're not creating false positives. And this is where I know you're a big fan of metrics, both of you. This is where MTTD works really well with MTTR. And in fact, you don't really want to have one without the other because when you can throttle up MTTD by dumping a bunch of un curated threat intelligence into your SIM or endpoint or whatever it is. And you can fire off a ton of detections and your mean time to detection will go down, but your mean time to resolution is going to go through the roof um, because there's so many false positives. And I would start at the top. I would start with detection and then move across the incident response process and ensuring that you're constantly calibrating your appetite for um, false positives based on the maturity of your organization. Brilliant. A one minute masterclass from Patrick. Thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us today. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all of the things that you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? Um, you can find me, emails pcoglin at truestar.co. Visit us at truestar.co or shoot me a note. It's been a real pleasure being on here with you folks. Like I said, I'm so happy and, and impressed with, with what you all have done with this platform and looking forward to seeing where it goes in the future. Really appreciate that. And thanks for all your support, Patrick. We'll be sure to drop all of your information and the links in the show notes. And we'll see everyone next time. If you enjoy our content, it would mean so much to us if you shared this episode on social media, told a friend, or wrote us a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. 